It's uh, 1961, and the assassination of uh, Patrice Lumumba shocks the world. He was the first elected leader of an independent Congo, and for years his death remained shrouded in mystery. These days we know a lot more about what happened, largely thanks to uh, Belgian historian Ludo de Wiet, uh, whose uh, work prompted a formal inquiry and ultimately an apology from Belgium and uh, Ludo came on the program at that time. But there's still a lot more to do, a lot to unpack, particularly around the role that Washington and the CIA played in this uh, whole affair. And that's the subject of a new book called The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. It's uh, by the exec editor of Foreign Affairs, Stuart A. Reed. And Stuart, welcome to our little wireless program. Can we begin by telling us, well, the backstory of Patrice Lumumba, who you describe as a, a born leader, equal part charm and pluck. So Patrice Lumumba was born in the Belgian Congo in 1925, and he had a remarkably upwardly mobile early life. He he was born in a small village and then moved to the city of Stanleyville in his late teens and early 20s. And there began his political rise and was active in all sorts of associations for Congolese at the time. Um, political activity was off limits. He became a clerk at the post office. And then he was arrested for embezzling money, spent a year plus in jail, and upon his release, reinvented himself as a beer salesman in the capital of the Belgian Congo. And by the late 50s, the Belgian government realized it had to, to give up its prized African possession and that it couldn't hold on to the Belgian Congo indefinitely. And Lumumba was increasingly active in political circles. And when the colony finally held elections for a post-independence leader, Lumumba's party won the most votes, and he was made prime minister upon independence in uh, June 1960. Now, of course, he was an autodidact. He never graduated from primary school. The The Belgians really limited the opportunities for advancement for Congolese. So um, there were no... There, higher education was not um, possible until very, very late under Belgian colonialism. And even then, they uh, forbade the new university from having a liberal arts program because they worried it would spread ideas about democracy and independence. So within that cramped colonial context, Lumumba um, was, as you said, an autodidact. He took correspondence courses to learn French better. Um, he, he took advantage of all the opportunities one could, but the, the whole Belgian strategy was to limit the development of a Congolese political elite. I can't resist uh, quoting the uh, U.S. ambassador to the Congo, uh, Claire Timberlake, who uh, liked to say that Lumumba was such a, a spellbinder that even if he walked into a gathering of Congolese politicians as a waiter with a tray on his head, he would have walked out as prime minister. Right. Timberlake was a is an, was an avowed enemy of Lumumba's. And it's even even Lumumba's bitterest foes recognized his 
gift for oratory and his political organizing skills. He was fluent in three of the Congo's main um, indigenous languages. He was a you know, he he was a spellbinder, and everyone who saw him, even his enemies, admitted that he could. He really had a way with words. He could mix sort of reason and legalistic arguments with passion. We've often done programs in the past on the horrors of uh, colonialism in uh, in the Congo, which of course gave rise to uh, to Conrad's Heart of Darkness. But give us a brief history of what the hell was going on or had gone on. So the Congo Free State, as it was known, was founded in 1885 by King Leopold II of Belgium. And what was distinct about that is that it was not a possession of the Belgian state. It was the personal fiefdom of King Leopold. He presided over a genocidal reign in the Congo where the goal was extraction rubber eventually. And this uh, involved sort of horrible abuses that that included infamous uh, photos of um, Congolese hands being cut off if they hadn't collected enough rubber. And that triggered an international outrage that led to the colony being transferred to the Belgian government in 1908. And King Leopold died the year before, and he never in his entire life set foot in the Congo, the, the colony he ran from a distance. So the Belgians, um, you know, un- under the Belgian government, the colonialism they practiced was, you know, slightly gentler, but it, many of the same abuses continued. And um, the goal was uh, was economic extraction. It was not to you know, develop indigenous political institutions. There wasn't a particularly large settler community. Um, so it was a, a particular form of colonialism. Now, there were problems baked into the newly independent state from the very beginning, many of them, of course, thanks to the Belgians. Right. So the Belgians only very belatedly realized that they had to let go. So let me give you an example of that. In 1955, a Belgian academic released a plan for the eventual independence of the Belgian Congo called the 30-Year Plan. The idea being that by 1985, the Congo would finally be ready to be independent. He almost lost his job for this report that he published because it was seen as way too aggressive a timeline and way too radical an idea. And so that gives you a sense of what the thinking was in 1955. Later in the 50s, as the winds of change blew across Africa and there was a riot in Leopoldville, the capital of the Belgian Congo, Belgian government realized that it it had to offload this colonial possession quickly. Um, so everything was extremely rushed, including the process for creating a new government. And so there were important questions about what level of federalism the Congo would have. These were sort of answered in this um, worst of both worlds way, where there was a strong central government, but also strong provincial governments sort of baking in tension to the very beginning. And there was the main problem was that there were so few, uh, basically none, Congolese administrators to run the country after independence, because there, you know, there were no Congolese doctors. There were only there were fewer than twenty Congolese university graduates in the entire world at that time. So there were a lot of problems that the Congo faced upon independence. 
Give us a, a summary of what happened in the days, weeks and months after this moment in history. So Congo becomes independent on June 30th, 1960. And almost immediately, everything falls apart. So on July 5th, there is a mutiny in the army. The officer corps had been still all white and all Belgian, a holdover from colonialism. This was predictably none too popular among the black rank and file who promptly revolted against their white officers. And they started um, sort of roaming the streets and uh, terrorizing the white population, which then fled Congo en masse, causing you know a, a massive instant brain drain. The Belgian military then intervened, sending paratroopers across the country without Congolese permission, in essence, invading its former colony. It looked like a recolonization to many. And then Lumumba, as prime minister, is desperate. His country is falling apart. To make matters worse, the mineral-rich province of Katanga has just announced its secession. And so he sends a desperate telegram to the United Nations asking for help. He doesn't even know what form this help will take exactly. And the UN, under Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, sets up this massive peacekeeping operation in just a matter of days. And there are thousands and thousands of troops from across Africa who are now you know, wearing blue berets, blue helmets under this multinational UN force. They try to put the country back together and restore order, but they're unable to reintegrate that secessionist province, Katanga. And so that's when Lumumba gets extremely frustrated. Uh, the UN, which he's invited in, has you know is failing to restore his country. And so he flies to the United States, asks for help from the Americans who rebuff him, and then eventually turns to the Soviets and asks for military help from them. And that's where, that was sort of the beginning of the end for Lumumba. So tell me about the end. So Lumumba's appeal to the Soviets set off alarm bells in the CIA, which set in motion this bizarre poisoning plot to kill him. That plot eventually fizzled and, and it wasn't what ended up killing Lumumba. But the CIA was doing other things as well. So it feared that Lumumba would turn the country communist and that his appeal to the Soviets indicated you know, that this the country would be in the Soviet bloc. But Stuart, he so, wasn't a communist, was he? Not at all. I mean, what surprised me in my research was just how pro-American Lumumba was. I mean, he... Uh, when he went to Washington, for instance, he called on U.S. troops to go to Congo, which is hardly, you know, hardly could have pleased Moscow. Um, he spoke of sending Congolese children to British and American schools, not Russian ones. Um, he signed over the Congo's entire mineral and hydroelectric resources to an American entrepreneur. His turning to the Soviets was really an act of desperation, not indicative of any orientation. And, 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 you, and you discovered that the Soviet wasn't all that interested anyway. I mean, one of the, the interesting things is that after the Cold War, when the Soviet archives were opened up, it turns out there wasn't much on Congo at all because the Soviets didn't give a damn. This was a far-off place to them with a heavily Catholic population not susceptible to communism. In 1960, the Soviet Union was not as powerful as it would become 
they viewed the Congo as a place they could score some political points. It was great propaganda, what the Belgians were doing there, but it was not a place they were going to have real influence. You'd never know that, though, from reading the American Gables, which saw Soviet influence everywhere. Now, Stuart, tell me about uh, this uh, Larry Devlin character. He was the CIA station chief in Congo at the time. Very resourceful, an independent actor, sort of sometimes got ahead of his skis. And um, he was the one who was handed the poisons by a CIA chemist and told to put them in Lumumba's food or toothpaste. Devlin ends up encouraging Joseph Mobutu, as he was then known, to take power in a military coup, which he does. And then when Larry Devlin learns that Lumumba is about to be sent to his death in January 1961, he gives Mobutu a green light for this operation, which everyone knows will result in Lumumba's death. And he also keeps CIA headquarters out of the loop for fear that he would be told to put the brakes on the operation because the Kennedy administration was about to take power. So Devlin is this fascinating character who made some extremely key decisions in 1960 and 1961 that led to the downfall and death of Lumumba and the installation of Mobutu as the country's military dictator. My guest is Stuart Reed, author of The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. You also say that the events in the Congo started a pattern of American interference all over the world. Right. So the Congo operation was viewed as a success. You had a seemingly pro-Soviet leader in Patrice Lumumba who was sidelined, removed from power, killed. And in his place, you had a ostensibly pro-American, pliant military dictator in Joseph Mobutu. So what was not to like in the Cold War context? Um, Larry Devlin earned an award for his behavior in Congo for his actions there. He was promoted. So internally within the U.S. government, this was a clear win what do you see next? You see Bay of Pigs in later in 1961, American support of military leaders across the what was then called the Third World. It didn't all begin in Congo. There was Iran and Guatemala in 54 and 53. But you can clearly but, see it as a, pre, a predecessor to what would happen in Cuba and, of course, Iran-Contra. Right. I mean, this was the sort of moment when the United States and the Soviet Union first faced off in the third world. It was the big Cold War crisis of its day, and it signaled the expansion of the Cold War from, which until then had been first and foremost a European affair, into the third world, including Africa. You uh, don't uh, absolve others from, uh, from this issue, do you? You're very critical of the UN, for example. The UN played a particularly malicious role in one aspect of this, which is that the coup that brought down Lumumba, where the president of Congo, in a legally dubious move, fired Lumumba, that was essentially arranged by the UN representative on the spot, a man named Andrew Cordier, who was just um, a temporary official in between two more permanent officials, but he happened to be there at a key time. And so the UN was frustrated with Lumumba, as was the U.S., and uh, sort of tipped the balance of power so that the president of Congo would remove him. Interestingly, the U.N. sort of 
later backtracked and realized that it had gone too far. And so you start to see a bit of a divergence between American policy and the UN, which was new for the time. Have you come to a a view about the death of uh, Doug Hammarskjöld? At the time, when I was very bolshy, I always assumed that was another CIA hit. The allegation that the CIA was involved, that doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, there was... Uh, there were Americans on board, for instance, on, in the plane that crashed and killed everyone on board, including Hammarskjöld. Um, and so I'm actually pretty skeptical of of a lot of the conspiracy theories. Uh, in 1961, planes crashed all the time for simple reasons of especially pilot error. So that's really the most likely cause of the crash that killed Dog Hammarskjöld. I admit, though, it's been... Uh, you know, 60 plus years, and we'll probably never know at this point. But Occam's razor suggests that um, it just crashed for the same reason many other planes did. And also, there's never been a real satisfying answer to the question of motive. Hammarskjöld was en route to signing a ceasefire whereby the UN would agree to stand down and stop trying to you know, deal a blow to the secessionists in Katanga. So we're, it, we're, as, um, we're talking an early example of shuttle diplomacy. Right. And it would be as if uh, someone assassinated Neville Chamberlain on the way to Munich. <laughs> There's a fascinating thought. Now, you say that the crisis in the Congo had a, a well, it was a defining moment for the UN and that it never fully recovered. Why do you, Why do you think that? The Congo crisis marked the height of the UN's ambitions. Never before had it set up such a massive peacekeeping operation. It was, you know, before that it had monitored ceasefires and truces in the Middle East, but this was something new, taking responsibility for the order of an entire country. Um, but the UN mission in Congo failed. It uh, it took forever to reintegrate Katanga. Um, and the UN also found itself under attack from all sides, the West and the East and the Third World, as it was called at the time, um, and sort of couldn't please everyone. And so what the Congo operation proved for the UN was that there were operations that were simply too ambitious to take on in the Cold War context. The Soviets had approved the mission. They regretted not using their veto power. So it was really the end of an era. And then, of course, it also claimed the life of Dag Hammarskjöld, who had remade the secretary general position into this independent actor, and it never regained that status. He was a very impressive fellow. Now, you say that a lot of the attitudes towards Lumumba in the US and indeed in the UN were driven by racism. How so? So if you look at the notes from White House meetings, for example, President Eisenhower uh, is talking about Congolese independence, which is at this point a few months away, and someone says that there are 80 political parties in, in Congo, and Eisenhower jokes, oh, I didn't know there were 80 Congolese who could read. Um, there was another official at a meeting who talked about the Congolese just having come down from the trees. Claire Timberlake, oh, the U.S. ambassador to Congo, joked in a letter to a friend that Lumumba was a cannibal. So you had these views that were, um, you know, not espoused openly, but we now can see were held privately. And I think this affected American policy in a couple of ways. One, 
was that it the, the Congolese were viewed as political children, and therefore they needed supervision and management, not you know not to be respected and not sovereignty. So there was meddling was justified by the fact that these were you know incompetent children who needed close attention. The other way is I think it allowed Congo to be viewed as this uncivilized dark place where bad things happened. And so the United States was party to a level of violence I don't think it would have accepted in other places, above all the um, torture and and murder of Lumumba. I neglected to point out that uh, the the approval to assassinate Lumumba would have come from the Oval Office. Indeed. So Eisenhower on August 18th, 1960, holds a meeting and Lumumba's latest antics are discussed. He's threatened to kick out the UN, which the US is very displeased by. And at some point, Eisenhower says something to the effect that Lumumba needs to be eliminated physically. We know this because the note taker at the meeting would later testify about this fact. And we also know it um, because when I was in the Eisenhower Library in Kansas, I saw handwritten notes from the meeting that had the word Lumumba written in cursive in the big black X next to it, not proof, but suggestive. And then most importantly, we know what happened next, which is that this CIA operation was set in motion. And when the poisons were delivered to Congo, handed to Larry Devlin, he asked, where did this come from? And he was told from President Eisenhower. Stuart, why does this story matter now? Why should we be interested? I think it shows the power and danger of paranoia. American officials at the time were deeply scared. It was the Cold War, the stakes seemed existential. And in that context, they made a lot of mistakes. They misjudged Lumumba fundamentally. They thought that the solution to the crisis was to back a military leader who was not representative. And the result was that Mobutu led Congo for 30 plus years and ran it into the ground. When it collapsed in 1996, 1997, it set off a civil war that killed literally millions of people. So there could not be a clear example of what happens when you don't think properly about American foreign policy decisions and you make a series of mistakes that cause the the people of the country to suffer the most. Today, There's a lot of paranoia about China, about Russia. But if you actually look at the evidence, it can give you a little bit of reason for for calm. For instance, Russia has zero bases in Africa. The United States has something like 25 military bases. China has one. Yet you hear all this discussion about Chinese and Russian influence in Africa. The, The real lesson of the Cold War, I think, is to stand back and let your rival um, make its own mistakes and not see them as 10 feet tall and perfectly capable and um, omnipotent and omnipresent. Fascinating, Stuart, and thank you very much for coming on the program. I've been talking to Stuart A. Reed, executive editor of that immensely influential Foreign Affairs, and we've been uh, talking about his new book, The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War assassination published by Penguin Random House. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. 
Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.